we're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is uh, Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and can be found on page 1030 in the Church Bibles. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And round the throne, on each side of the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all round and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the angel, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives for ever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives for ever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and, a golden, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might for ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that together in the next few minutes. There's also an outline of where we're going in the service sheet, so do make use of that as you see fit. And there will be the opportunity at the end for um, any questions uh, or comments that you might have. So bear that in mind as we go through. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good, and sovereign over us. And so we pray, please, now, as we reflect on your word, we would be those who would listen carefully to it, uh, to trust uh, what you say, and to be obedient to your commands. And we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. The two chapters that we've just uh, read together are loaded with spectacular symbolism. It's one of the things that characterises apocalyptic literature. And it's what makes it very useful for unveiling to us how things are seen from God's perspective. By using metaphors and analogies and symbolism, heavenly realities are described in categories that we can comprehend. For example, uh, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, God is described as one who sits on a throne in heaven. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, as he sits on the throne in heaven, he's described as holding a scroll in his right hand. God sits on a throne. In his right hand, he holds a scroll. But this is where some people have a problem. If God sits on a throne, does that mean that God has a bottom on which to sit? If God has a scroll in his right hand, does that mean that God has five fingers? Well, four fingers and a thumb, a palm and a wrist that make up his right hand. And if God does not have a bottom on which to sit, then does he really sit on a throne? And if God doesn't have four fingers and a thumb and a palm that make up his right hand, then does he really have a hand in which to hold the scroll? In which case, 
God is not really what the Bible says about him. That's the argument. And the whole direction in which this argument goes is that God remains hidden. Human language is just not strong enough to be able to describe what God is like. Now at this point, we could talk about how symbolism works. That which is being described symbolically doesn't have everything in common with the symbol. Neither does it have nothing in common with the symbol. Yet there is some common ground, and that's where the symbolism works. But it might be argued, how do we know what the common ground is? One person might say it's this, the other person might say it's that. Doesn't the whole thing boil down to, I like to look at God as... The point to remember in all of this is who is using the symbolism? Who is it that describes God as sitting on a throne in heaven? Who describes God as holding a scroll in his right hand? Well, if you flick back to Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, we're told... Revelation 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. God gave a revelation to Jesus to disclose to his people. God is the one who is using the symbolism. And he, well, he knows the items of the universe, for he is the creator. He knows himself, and therefore he knows when the symbolism is good. If I can put it this way, it is God who is saying, I like to look at God as... The symbolism that God uses of himself in Revelation 4 is spectacular. Although, not much is said about God himself. We're told, verse 2, that he sits on a throne. And verse 3, that his appearance was of jasper and carnelian. That's it. And the effect is that there is, there's an indescribable majesty to him. Yet, the one who sits on the divine throne is enhanced by a number of other spectacular features that are going on around him. Let's consider four of them. First, the divine throne is enhanced by spectacular divine beings. Have a look at verse 4 of chapter 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, 
with golden crowns on their heads. Now, there are two schools of thoughts as to who the 24 elders are. The first is that they represent all believers. The 24 being made up of the uh, 12 um, um, tribes of Israel um, and then the 12 apostles. And I understand a conclusive argument for this view uh, comes from the King James Version, which, although we may be less familiar with, is still, you know, it's still hugely influential on um, biblical thought. So, if you let me briefly explain, if you look, um, if you skip on to chapter five, verse nine, we learn there of the song that the twenty-four elders sing. Okay. Now, in the ESV, the Church Bibles, the song begins, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. But in the King James Version, the song is, Thou art, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. So in the King James Version, the 24 elders sing that God has redeemed them. God's redeemed no angel, and so if it was the right translation, then that would be conclusive. The 24 elders represent believers. But that's not what the original Greek text says. The ESV is right when it says the elders speak of men purchased by God and not the elders themselves. The second option, then, is that the 24 elders are a higher order of angels. I think there are good reasons for running with this. Not least that the book of Revelation will later on draw a distinction between the 24 elders and all believers. So, for example, in chapter 5, verse 8, we learn that the 24 elders offer the prayers of believers up to God. And then much later in chapter 14, verse 3, we learn that the redeemed sung a song that not even the elders can sing. And the effect of this is this. God is not a big cuddly teddy bear in the sky. God is not a grandfather who sits you on his knee. God is the one who sits on a throne in indescribable majesty, surrounded by angelic beings who themselves are royal. Second, the divine throne is enhanced by a surrounding storm. Chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. This, of course, is reminiscent of God's self-disclosure at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. There, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mount and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. Before nuclear power, the greatest power that humans knew of was the storm. 
there are storms, and then there are storms. And with spectacular displays of forked lightning, followed by great roars of thunder, the effect is to distance us from God. Third, the divine throne is enhanced by a sea of glass. Verse 6. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. Now, glass in those days wasn't clear, but semi-opaque. And the effect of describing a sea of glass stretching out before the throne, it's not that you can see all the fish swimming around. It's not that God sees everything through it. Apocalyptic symbolism does have symbolism for omniscience, and we'll see that in a moment. Rather, the effect is that the sea is sparkly and glistening. And I suspect the sea is not calm at all, bearing in mind the storm. In other words, this sea of glass stretching out before the throne glistens and sparkles, adding to the effect of distance from God. And finally, the divine throne is enhanced by four living creatures. Pick it up halfway through verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We're dealing here with the highest angelic beings who orchestrate the praise of God. A clue to their significance is found in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 29, where a similar combination of lions, oxen and cherubim occur in the temple decorations. This indicates that we are in the temple presence of God, which is itself reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. The wings of the angels are covered with eyeballs. You can't draw this. It's the apocalyptic symbolism for omniscience. God's throne sees everything. And all, all of these features enhance that which is central to it all. God sitting on a throne in heaven. And it's at this point that the drama begins. Revelation 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. John now sees a scroll in God's right hand that's sealed up. And there's a great deal of concern that no one is found worthy to open it. So much so that in verse 4, John weeps and weeps. 
Well, why is it so important that the scroll needs to be opened? Why does John weep? Well, the scroll contains all of God's purposes for judgment and salvation. And so to open the scroll is to bring about all of God's purposes for judgment and salvation. John is weeping, not because he's denied some kind of sneaky peek as to what God's purposes are. John weeps because it looks like God's future will not come to pass. Well, a challenge is issued in verse 2 by a mighty angel to the whole created order. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is capable to bring to pass God's purposes? But verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the sea was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No angelic being, no human, no spirit, good or evil, is able to open the scroll. Now this challenge only makes sense if we understand chapter 4. But we can tend to think, you know, pick me, I'll do it, give me the scroll. But who is capable to bring to pass all of God's purposes? I mean, if I can put it this way, to get to God and break the seals of the scroll that lies in the right hand of his power, you've got to cross the sea of glass, get through the angels who are already terrifying in themselves, get through the thunderstorm, approach this God whom even the angels are hiding their faces from, and take something from his hand. This is why the whole setting is so important. We can't approach God like that. Well, at this point, in verse 5, John is comforted by one of the elders, who says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John then looks, verse 6, and sees a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. Now, John doesn't see two creatures here. He doesn't see a lion over there, and then he looks, and he sees a lamb. Rather, there is one who is a lion, who is also a lamb. And so the paragraph break in verse 6 is not that helpful here, because there are not two creatures, but one. The lion of verse 5 is the lamb of verse 6. And one of the things that apocalyptic does again and again in the book of Revelation is mix its metaphors. There's not lots of places you can do that in English and get away with it. If you mix metaphors in English, things start to look a bit silly. But in apocalyptic, you do it all the time. And in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus sees as a lion. Jesus is seen as a lion, and then he is seen as a lamb. Well, how can a lion be a lamb? The point is, he is both. You don't add the lion and the lamb together to make a sort of lion-lamb. You don't try and draw a lion that has a head of a lamb 
or a lion that has the fleece of a sheep. You don't diminish one by the other. Rather, you take each of the metaphors separately and see what they mean. Well, the Lion of Judah picks up ideas as early as Genesis 49, uh, verses 9 and 10, and represents the idea that the king from the Israelites comes from the tribe of Judah. That he is the line of the tribe of Judah is another way of saying that he is the Messiah. And this is confirmed by the reference to David, from whose line the Messiah would come. That he is a slaughtered lamb is another way of saying that his death was a sacrifice for sin. And this is confirmed in verse chapter 5, verse 9, where it's made explicit that it was with his blood that he redeemed his people. And bearing in mind the failed challenge of chapter 5, verse 2, it is significant that the one worthy to open the scroll comes from the throne. Apocalyptic mixes its metaphors and in this way is able to say several things at once. In this case, we have a lion and a lamb. That is to say that this one is the Christ who was crucified. And it's this crucified Christ who comes and takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This whole section concludes in song. And it's a song that's accompanied by verse 8, with the playing of harps. Now I understand that the inspiration for heaven as people wearing white nighties and playing harps come from a text such as this. And most of us don't find that kind of thought very appealing. Now if we've interpreted the 24 elders correctly, then we're not the ones singing this song. It's the 24 higher order of angels. But perhaps more importantly, the way they viewed a harp back then is not the way we tend to think of a harp today. Today, a harp is considered quite a subdued, elegant instrument. But back then, it was understood to be an instrument of joy. In many of the Psalms, it was an instrument that God's people used to praise God, to take delight in him with dancing. The harp wasn't an instrument of lament, but an instrument of joy. And when the Jews went into exile, they sat by the rivers of Babylon and hung up their harps and wept. But now the harps have come down. Instead of John weeping, now there is reason for joy. The line of the tribe of Judah has conquered. The sacrifice has been offered. All of God's purposes have been brought to pass. And so there is reason for great joy. As I finish, uh, let me um, consider these two points of um, implication and encouragement. If you recall from Revelation verse one, chapter 1, the reason that God gives this revelation to his servants is so that they know how to live 
under the terrible conditions that will take place in these last days. In subsequent visions, John is going to be shown the tribulations that the church must live through. It's what John is already experiencing, chapter 1, verse 9. And twice in the book of Revelation, John calls on his readers to patient endurance and faithfulness to Jesus. In other words, the book has as its goal edification, strengthening, and the building up of God's people in the face of persecution. In the midst of persecution, human kings and rulers and governments have the potential to claim all kinds of authority over us. But we need to remember that above thrones, there are other thrones. And above those, there are other thrones. But in the end, above all thrones, there is one final throne. John doesn't let us forget that in persecution, there are thrones above thrones until there is one throne. Secondly, if no one was found to open the scroll, then God's purposes would not come to pass. And that would mean that all that the church is going through is in vain. If Christ had not died, then there wouldn't be a single redeemed person. There would not have been a church. There would be no descent of the Spirit. Repentance would not be possible. No forgiveness of sins. There'd be no protection for God's people in the hours of bitter trial. There would be no judgment upon a persecuting world. There would be no ultimate triumph for believers. No promise of resurrection. No new heaven and new earth. No future inheritance. But a world gone wrong, consigned to the depths of hell. It's unthinkable, but still explorable. But there was someone found to open the scroll. And so that all that the church is going through and will go through, its persecution, its trials, are not in vain. Rather, we can be confident that all of God's purposes in judgment and redemption will be fulfilled. Let's pray, then I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this vision uh, that you have given us concerning yourself and your purposes for the world, that we might share a heavenly perspective um, on the days that we're living in. We thank you that there is a throne in heaven on which you sit and rule the entire cosmos. And we thank you that there is a scroll who 
and one has been found worthy to open the scroll. We thank you for the great confidence that that gives us, that your plans and purposes in both judgment and redemption have already been fulfilled in the Lamb who is the Lion. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay. Appreciate it's hot, so we'll see how we go, but we will give you an opportunity for any questions or comments. And now is that time. Yes. Yeah, thank you. I thought I thought this might it's dangerous I said I thought this question might come up. Then you might think, well, you should have prepared then, so let's see what See what you think of the answer. So just for the recording, so there's an um, intriguing phrase in verse 5. Let me just read all of verse 5. So from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Um, so yeah, what are the seven spirits of God? Um, you know, we'll be familiar with the Holy Spirit. Is that, is that what this is about? Is this something different? So... First of all, I think there are three places in Revelation where this appears. The first place is back in um, chapter 1, verse 4. So there it says, uh, John said to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was, how and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. And so we might be thinking here, because we've got, um, in verse, initially we've got the reference to uh, God the Father, and then we've got reference to the seven spirits, and then we have reference to Jesus. It's tempting to think that the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit. Um, it seems would it be improper to bracket anything else between the Father and the Son in verse 4. So we might be thinking the Spirit. Okay. Now, one thing I'm trying to model to here is also like actually to look at how the book of Revelation is using it. So there's that. The other reference to it is... Uh, chapter 5, verse 6, um, which says, 
I saw a lamb standing as it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, so you might just think, well, let's just run with the Holy Spirit. Um, however, the argument loses a little bit of force if we look at a couple of other parts of the Bible. So if you want to flick, I've got here Luke 9.26. Um, I'm hoping this is right. So 9.26, so it says here, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So there we have the Son, the Father and the holy angels. Uh, another one, uh, if you're making notes, uh, a similar pattern is 1 Timothy 5.21. So another possibility, which is only a conjecture, would be that the seven spirits before his throne are a part of their heavenly sort of entourage, part of that, that which enhance uh, the throne and which has a special ministry in connection with the Lamb. So, I don't think it's hard to say much more than that. Is that cool? Anybody else? Susie. Okay, interesting. So, so you're thinking, so verse 13, when it talks about, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth in the sea, and it's all, the, all that's in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, be blessing and honour and glory, or to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. Is the, the creatures under the earth and in the sea, and it's all in them, are they, are they, are they unrepentant? Are they, who are those people? Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting. So I hadn't thought that. I was. I, I was. Um, um, let me tell you what I was thinking, and then we'll see where it goes. So I was just thinking, it's it's a way of um, 
under, underlined that every, it's every creature. So you know, a little bit kind of Genesis 1-y in terms of all creatures. So creatures in the, on the land, on the earth, sorry, in, the, in the sky, on the land, in the sea. Basically, all of creation is um, tied up to that. I mean, I guess if it's all of creation, then there isn't. That doesn't um, exclude. That, I mean, that means that, that you no, know, that naturally follows. That there isn't any part of creation that's not engaged or tied up with God's purposes and judgment and redemption. This is kind of cosmic. Um, but I don't know if here. Um, but also, it's interesting because, like, the sea becomes there is a symbolism for sea, which is which you know goes down sort of the road you're going. But whether at this point it's slightly more, um, you know, going back to chapter four, verse eleven, you created all things by your will; they existed and created, and now all of that creation is is tied up with um, the fulfilment of God's purposes in the opening of the scroll. Um, I mean, it's a good spot because I think it does also show you that we're not, how to put it, we're not majoring on a minor here. This scroll isn't just some part of the story. Um, this is, it's cosmic. This, the, the, the purposes that come from the opening of the scroll, the fulfillment of them, are um, involve the entire created order. So in other words, this is, um, you can't get a bigger narrative. This is, this is the big story. And as such, all of creation's caught up in it. And I think it's quite a powerful way of, of saying, actually, you know, everyone is, everyone's on board with this because you can't not be because of the scope of it. Is that, yeah. Time for one more. Josh. Yes. Where is um, Yes. I think so. Yeah, so that where idea where the I mean in many ways it's a passing it's a passing thought, but um, it just seems significant in verse six. It says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, who are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll. Um, so and I guess it goes back to the whole idea of to what extent, well, I think Revelation 4 sets the scene for the action of Revelation 5. But there is a a transcendence, there is a distancing of God in Revelation 4, where you just think, how does that, you know, God's unapproachable in, in that sense, um, whereas actually the one who takes the scroll is seen to come from, from the throne room. So I suppose it's, it's that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so, and that's kind of where, when he's introduced, that he's not he's not found. 
Well, I don't know how far. You don't push it too far, but he's not found from another part of creation. He says, oh, it's me. I'll come. And, you know, he sort of then makes the journey. It's actually he's, he's, he's already in the throne room. He is, you know, he is the divine son. He is God. And therefore, that, that is where he, where he is, I think. Um, which I think then goes back to the fact that the same worthy that's given to God the creator is also given to God the redeemer. So this is all tied up with this is, um, and this is a very um, uh, it's astonishing passage just purely for the, for the um, who Jesus is, that he is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, not only because he's the creator, but he's he's doubly worthy because he's also the redeemer. I think that's the that he, he shares the that the splendor. You know, all those aspects that enhance the throne, he then shares in as the, the son who sits down with the father, that sort of thing. Good one. All right, we will uh, leave it there. Um, but let's keep chatting about these things. We're gonna sing um, in Christ alone. <laughs>